Hi, just before we begin this episode, I'm just going to let you know now that this is going to be an ep- this criteria round will be for November and December 2012, and then I will be doing January, February, March 2013. The reason why there's going to be a delay on those is the discs that I've ordered um, for those months, not all of them have arrived yet. And in order to kind of keep postal costs down, I have them kind of grouped together. And Amazon.com in America have a bit of a funny way of releasing them sometimes. They do arrive in a rather staggered way. So I will try and get that episode out as soon as those um, discs have arrived. Just to let you know as well that myself and Joachim Thiessen from the Film Man podcast have started another podcast in which we will be going through the Masters of Cinema collection, which is a British-based distributor. You can find us over at mocast.blogspot.com. We are on iTunes as well as Masters of Cinema Cast. We've just put a first episode out, which was on Peter Watkins' Punishment Park. There is going to be plenty more to come. Hopefully, we're going to be aiming to do about two a month of those. So um, I have been quite aware of the fact, though, that I don't really want to be involved in podcasts that go through kind of the criteria in Masters of Cinema. So, of course, there will be a few episode, more episodes of the 24 Frames cast coming which um, kind of deviate away from those. I still have every intention of continuing the podcast. The Bond retrospective has carried on as well with Moonraker up on the exclusive pages and I will be getting um, the next episode of that out quite soon because it has been recorded. There's a bit of a backlog on shows that I've recorded that I'm editing at the moment. Unfortunately, life has been a little bit hectic again this year and I've not been able to sit down and record as much, but it looks like things are clearing so I should be able to get down and get on with some podcasts. But for the time being, this Criterion Roundup will focus on November and December releases. Just... Um, one word of warning, however, this will not be featuring the Quartzide trilogy, which came out in December. I'm going to be saving those for another day. So many thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so first up, we have to go back to November with a look at the release of Pierre Pasolini's tri- trilogy of life, which consists of The Decameron, The Canterbury Tales, and Arabian Nights, which are spine numbers 632, 633, and 634, respectively. Now... Just a quick few words on Pasolini, because he's a director who, as you're going to hear quite soon, I'm not a huge fan of Jean-Luc Godard, but I am a massive fan of Pasolini. And many kind of people sort of, uh, when I kind of mention this to them, they look at Pasolini as being far more out there and perhaps um, of lesser ability than Godard. And I, you know, I suppose it all comes kind of down to opinion, really, and how, how they often ask me how I can be so kind of dismissive of one and so accepting of the other. And really, I think it's, you know, it is a, a case of personal preference. I, I find Godard's films to be quite annoying. Pasolini's, I find um, annoying, but also incredibly rewarding at the same time. And my first kind of in um, sort of film I ever saw of his was The Gospel of S- According to Matthew, which is, I, I still consider it to be one of the finest films ever made about Jesus, especially when you compare it to kind of how overblown you know, kind of Hollywood has been on that subject. And it really kind of, uh, even as an atheist, I found it an incredibly moving film. And having now seen it again from on the Masters of Cinema Blu-ray that's put out, it's, it's one I can definitely recommend picking up. But I, I realised as well before I was looking at this, that I, all, I own all of his films on one format or other, um, other than Medea. And he is a director who... He would probably always be known for Salo, which was his last film. And I, that is the only film I've ever watched where I was actually almost physically sick. And I don't mean that as, you know, I, I'm not kind of speaking metaphorically. I was almost literally sick. I was heaving. I could taste sick in my mouth. I, I actually thought I was going to hurl. And I don't know if I could ever go back and watch Salo again. I, it, it's... um. 
it was an experience unlike ever I have ever seen. And for that and other reasons, I suspect um, Pasolini would pay the price of his life. You know, he was murdered um, in still very suspicious circumstances. Um, Off the top of my head, I don't know if there's ever been like a film or documentary about that. I would have to look into that because I think it would make for a fascinating um, uh, piece because this was a someone who... As a person, he was a Marxist, he was um, an atheist, and he was a homosexual. And he was incredibly um, forthright with his opinions. And he kind of made enemies, really, in so many places. He kind of just seemed to offend almost everyone. He was kicked out of the Communist Party for his um, homosexuality. He was ostracised for the church, obviously, for the controversy contained within his work because before he was a director Pasolini was a writer a poet and he eventually began working with Fellini in the end writing a lot of kind of films for him and the pair collaborated many times on films like the Dolce Vita and it was Fellini really who tried to encourage him to take up directing and which he did when he made his first film, Akatone, and quite strangely enough, Fellini afterward actually just abandoned him after that, and I, I think, I'm, I'm not entirely sure of the reasons why, I, I wonder if it was because of the subject matter, or he just thought he was completely talentless, but other directors who he'd worked with um, would be far more complimentary, especially Bernard Bertolucci, who worked on Akatone with him, and he once famously said that he was like watching Pasolini was like being at the birth of cinema, which I think is um, a pretty big statement to make. And I think one of the things that I've always liked about Pasolini's work is they do look ever so slightly amateurish, his films. Sometimes, sometimes when he cuts, it's as if, you know, he should have let the scene go on a little bit more and... The production values, although are quite high on a lot of them, they do seem to always be kind of quite shabby looking places. And really that's part of what Pasolini is about. His films are about people from the lower end of society through the ages. You know, they are about the kind of the um, the poor almost. And I had one good description was it's, it's if he makes films about people who modernity have left behind and... I think that's kind of one of the, I think that's probably one of the best ways of describing the the people who inhibit these worlds that he creates. And for some reason, I've always found it incredibly um, refreshing in a way that uh, that he does this. And he doesn't, I don't think he patronises these types of people either. And it's probably one of the reasons why I find Godard so annoying is that I think a lot of his films seem to be kind of pandering to um, kind of, people who consider themselves to be intellectually sophisticated whereas I think Pasolini opens up film to a far more general and varied audience and you know, there's and despite these kind of things you know, the kind of the fact that they might look slightly kind of amateurish I think they belie a sophistication which is which is worthy of a great deal more investigation. Now the trilogy of life came apart in Pasolini's career where I think he had really kind of moved away from any type of kind of political affiliation or societal affiliation. Quite famously, I think um, Pasolini himself was was saying once that uh, he was asked, you know, who, if he saw the police fighting with students, who he felt sorry for. And he he said it quite 
quite pointedly, I think, that if he had to kind of choose between the middle class students and the working class police battling in the streets, his sympathies were with the policemen and their poor families rather than the pampered rich kids. And I, I completely um, sympathise and recognise that situation. When I was at university, I used to, several people I knew, in fact, were from incredibly rich and privileged backgrounds. And yet they used to drone on about kind of politics in a way that would make you think they had kind of could have grown up in these kind of favelas somewhere and said so they had had immensely privileged lives in in Britain. And it's a case now where where I work, I you know, I, I do some part time work at um the local authority and the people there are so deluded um and arrogant and snobbish about kind of what they do and they kind of see it as being this big favour to society almost that they work there and what I kind of despise about these people is the fact that they talk about kind of society's ills and they do absolutely nothing about them but they seem to think that somehow they are morally superior to other people because they recognise the fact that society isn't fair but they don't actually collectively do anything to actually better it and in, in terms of Pasolini, I think with this trilogy, he kind of lets loose a little bit. And I think that he's most, I, I would say, kind of like honest and personal films in many ways with some of the kind of the themes and the subjects that they explore. And I find it quite strange because I personally consider him to perhaps be his most entertaining films in a way. And it, it's it's strange that you know the last film we'd ever make would be Salo because I just think... He seems to be going in a direction with these and then Salo seems to kind of really come back to this incredibly um, bleak and fairly awful world which he presents. But we're going to kick things off with spine number 632 which is the Decameron and I think it's certainly the the, the best film of the trilogy. I, I I, you know, having seen them all a couple of times now, and I, I, I saw the Decameron ages ago, and I remember being kind of quite taken with it then. But I personally think it's—I it, don't think it's the most entertaining of all of them. Now, now these films went back to source material from a few hundred years ago that were kind of famous through the Western world, and I think that's a very telling theme because he's mining the past for stories in which to kind of present kind of ideas about the present also and Pasolini took this film this theme along with him he did, he shot the film in Naples and in a very local Neapolitan dialect and I think that's quite telling because although it's not the same kind of um, language that the the original novel is based on I think it's kind of in keeping with its spirits in the fact that this is a film that takes place in its very own world that isn't kind of particularly kind of influenced by the world or outside of it. It's a very regional work. And now the film is made up of 10 different tales, all covering covering various different subjects from kind of people being swindled out of money. In fact, deceit is one of the common recurring elements of the Decameron. And we also have lots of kind of sex with nuns and cheating wives and all this type of thing. And some of them are extremely funny, it has to be said. One of my, I think, one of the, the 
most amusing characters out of all this is played by an actor called Nenento Divaglio, who he would be, he's in all of these films and he has one of the, he, it's one of the funniest faces. And I literally mean, I don't mean that cruelly. He just looks like an incredibly amusing guy who was a, he actually met um, Pasolini who was 15 and he was in all of these films. And he always seems to have this kind of rather kind of stupid smile on his face. And he, he's a very infectious personality. I really, in all of them, I was, uh, every time he kind of turned up, I was kind of looking forward to what he did next. But like a lot of kind of literature from the kind of the 1400s, around 1500s, um, we don't often think that they are be as sexually explicit as they are. And I, I think certainly Pasolini jumps on these elements of all three um, stories but especially here in the Decremont, because you can see that this is someone who has a complete and utter disregard for, I suppose, being polite in society. There's a story in which the kind of a peasant boy ends up in a nunnery and uh, he eventually has to kind of have sex with all the nuns. We have um, the story kind of the, the, the there is a framing story of sorts in which a kind of a swindler manages to um, become to retrieve sainthood. And you can't not obviously read into the fact that this is a um, very, I think, pointed and deliberate attack on the Catholic Church. And I, I, I think everything about the Dacramon is challenging the perceived teachings of organised religion. You know, sex in these films uh, outside of marriage is, is not a sin. It is something that kind of is celebrated in many respects it's not something which people are kind of judged morally for they are just free to go and enjoy themselves and live a life of perhaps in a way very kind of selfish um, intentions but it's free from the baggage of organized religion one of the reasons why I think these films are so incredibly personal to Pasolini was he actually turns up in this as a fresco painter and the character's name is Giotto and he's working on this huge fresco that will consist of three different images and there's a brilliant moment where he walks out into the street and he begins to make a square with his hands over his eye and he's looking around the streets obviously trying to frame and to get an idea of what he wants to paint in the world around him and of course, you know, this scene of taking part in like the 15th century or something like that. But I think the parallels with obviously him as the director are all too apparent because even in the film set in contemporary times, he is making films about people in the street. He's making films about ordinary people in the world. And I think there's this wonderful linkage between the old and new that the kind of the artist and the director are essentially trying to do the same thing. They are trying to capture a reality and a vision of life that is a struggle of sorts that artists have tried to conquer throughout the ages and it's very telling at the end of the film that this kind of fresco isn't completed he only does two of the three and I suppose, you know, threes play an important part in kind of the world of film and kind of religion. We have, you know, the, the Holy Trinity and we, you know, this is obviously part of a trilogy of films. And I think by leaving it kind of open and not completing this fresco, he's suggesting that life seldom has the completion 
that we would like. And certainly in his case, obviously, it's kind of quite um, telling by the fact, you know, he was someone who was killed in, you know, way early on in their life. Well, certainly he should have had a good few many years in him. He certainly should have been around for a good while longer than he actually was. And the Decamon, very much like the painter, it just ends this film. It doesn't really kind of, it doesn't give you a kind of a vast kind of moralization at the end. I think it's very much a, very much perhaps a kind of a, a snub to the kind of the audiences who, who want, you know, we do like um, films to be kind of, we do like an ending, I suppose. And, Pasolini denies us that, like he did. He like the, the way in which the same way the painter is going to deny everyone who sees the fresco the kind of the the fulfilment of having all three done, and he just stops. And that might be a problem for some. It certainly isn't for me. I, I, I it's it's one of the reasons why I find Pasolini's work so um, exciting. Perhaps sometimes is that there is this sense that you know you you have to enjoy what's there when it's there because you don't know when it's going to end. And certainly this is a case where that happens. I think seeing the Decremont again, I've just recently read a book about Mother Teresa, or several in fact, actually. And the whole kind of the idea of this kind of murder and a thief becoming a saint, um, it's strange because obviously when an institution declares something like the Catholic Church to say someone a saint, that's it really. And it's kind of the kind of the normal kind of critical analysis of these people kind of goes out the window. And suddenly you take someone like Mother Teresa, who was a woman who allowed and in fact encouraged suffering um, on levels which are beyond comprehension of cruelty and yet this woman is effectively a saint you know, she was declared a saint for reasons which are beyond um, stupid uh, I can only encourage anyone to kind of look up look, look that up and see why and um, I, I think it's one of the reasons why this film is so uh, relevant really in many ways i think it's a, a breath of fresh air and i, I think it's good that um, people like pasolini are kind of making these statements about the kind of organizations that stick people on the pedestals who to many of us are morally reprehensible and the interesting thing about the decorum it was it was a very uh, successful film financially and critically and it kind of ushered in a a new kind of genre of pornography as well, because the film is very sexually explicit, and we have kind of full frontal nudity throughout. Well, in fact, there's a lot of nudity in these films, but you know, especially in these, you know. And um, it's a shame that almost happened in a way, because you know, this film did suffer at the hands of the censors quite a bit. But I, for one, I think it's a, a, a remarkable film. It's so vibrant and fast-flowing that it's it's impossible not to enjoy it. Um, it has an anarchic charm to it, which I think if you are a fan of um, certainly kind of films that kind of push buttons, I think this, even by today's standards, I think it kind of holds up as being a very provocative and uh, endearing film. Now, the kind of the follow-up in the trilogy of life would be The Canterbury Tales, which would come out in 1972 a year after the decremont and the can i was i have never seen this film before i picked up this box set and i was extremely yeah intrigued by it because the canterbury tales um when i was at school um you hear about them from primary to secondary and the fact that canterbury is relatively nearby as well to where i used to live um always kind of held a fascination for me and the canterbury tales um by chaucer were they're really this the story uh, an amalgamation of stories and they were kind of told by 
uh, a group of pilgrims on their way to Canterbury as a way of kind of entertaining um, the journey, I suppose. Everyone had their own tale. And uh, very much when you learn about the language of Chaucer, these films are incredibly um, explicit. And I remember one passage in particular, I think it's from The Miller's Tale, which was, um, he caught her by the quainter. Now, if you know what the uh, quainter is, its modern day equivalent is cunt. And I can remember a rather amusing um, episode in which my English teacher was playing Chaucer swearing hangman. And he would write the word, he wrote quainter on the uh, blackboard and then left four um, dashes at the bottom where we had to guess what the word was. And obviously the first word someone came up with with C. So he wrote a C as the first uh, letter and then obviously you and then obviously he was about to write T when the door opened and the headmaster of the school walked in showing some uh, of the school governors around and he rather amusingly kind of jumped on the blackboard to hold to um, uh, disguise what he was actually showing and it was one of the funniest things I've ever witnessed because he was an extremely amusing man and it was very much uh, looking back it was very much kind of in keeping with the Canterbury details of this kind of slapsticky uh, moment that uh, even um, the rather uh, boring headmaster of the school found quite funny too and what we have in this adaption is um eight of the stories and you can tell that when i was watching it i was kind of reminded almost of a um a carry-on film because they it's quite strange because he's definitely filmed they've definitely been filmed in england and uh it's one of these things about Pasadena where there's one shot where you can literally see a farmhouse and telegraph poles and it's almost like he doesn't bother you know it's kind of like oh you know forget that let's just kind of get in with these tales and I kind of bought into the humour of them almost right away um Nanito Diwali is back and he's in this he's playing obviously a version of Charlie Chaplin and I don't really find Charlie Chaplin funny at all but in this I, I thought his story was absolutely hilarious and superficially perhaps the Canterbury Tales for all its kind of fart jokes and you know hot pokers on the arse and all this type of thing you you might think I, I guess that it's kind of quite kind of throwaway kind of daft entertainment but again once you kind of dig a little deeper into it I think there is a little bit more going on and I think certainly there is a uh, another kind of pointed kind of attack on the church in which we have one kind of story of um, we have a kind of an inquisitor going around and he catches two men having gay sex and in one well two, two different instances of men having gay sex and in one instance where the man can bribe off the inquisitor he's just kind of let on his merry, merry way whilst the other one who can't afford to pay the bribe ends up getting burnt at the stake and it kind of shows the hypocrisy, doesn't it? You know, money can wash away sins. And uh, when really, you know, obviously a sin's a sin, doesn't matter who, who commits it. It should be the same penalty for both. But of course it isn't, is it? It's, uh, you know, and going back to the modern world, isn't it? You know, if you rob a bank, um, you are going to go to prison. If you launder money for drug dealers, as has recently happened with HSBC, you get a fine and no one goes to prison. And it just seems incredible, doesn't it? You know, you have these two, you know, I would say what's worse, you know, the instance of robbing a bank or m laundering money for international drug dealers. To me, it's a no brainer one, you know, but well, probably both deserve prison, but certainly the, the money launderers who have knowingly allowed that to happen deserve far worse. And I, I think 
I think that aside, what what really comes across in the Canterbury Tales is that these people in the film they're there to be enjoyed they're there to be laughed at and they're there to to to, to entertain which i think is what they do and the stories themselves they're, they're incredibly simple um tales of kind of betrayal and double crossing and what what makes what what i think i like about the canterbury tales is that everyone's as stupid is on the same level as stupid yeah there's not sort of um there's a democracy, I suppose, to the idiocy that you see in it, and uh, and 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 where this film eventually ends up, it basically it, we eventually end up in hell, and we actually have a kind of a devil literally farting out monks in the end, and it, it's just to go in this direction. Um, I think it's one of the most outrageous sequences. I, I've ever seen in any film. I, I literally cannot think of another instance where you, you go from this kind of crazy bawdy tale that ends up in a kind of, in, well, in a very kind of almost cliched, I suppose a very medieval presentation of hell because one of the, the most striking things about all these films, and I will post pictures up on the blog, is the fact that Pasolini replicates several um scenes that they literally that they are take their inspiration comes from kind of paintings from the kind of the renaissance era and before and you you can see the similarities between how he composes the shots and how these paintings look and like i said i will post them i'll post up some comparisons on screen on the, on the blog sorry for you to look at and this kind of representation of hell is it's there's kind of like fire and imps and things like that running around and people being strung up and it's hilarious in many ways. I think it mocks the idea of a hell because you have, you know, when we have like kind of apparent noblemen, and we obviously when we see in this film as well, people who kind of pretend to be virtuous, who can be bought off and kind of ignore sin, um, all end up in this horrendous place. And, you know, the, the sheer guile of the guy to actually have, you know, people being farted out into hell, I think it's brilliant. And, it's perfectly in keeping. There's nothing like that in the Canterbury Tales, for sure. This is certainly a kind of a Pasolini touch to the proceedings. But I, I think it's a hilarious way of um, mocking the kind of the that idea that this is a place where kind of bad people end up. Because as you see in these films, you know, really everyone is pretty much morally um, dubious, to say the least. It's very, you know, for all it's kind of, the craziness that goes before this just seems to kind of take it to another level and it's justified as well i think it's a certainly a, a fitting conclusion to what is a, a extremely funny and uh hugely entertaining film and once again you know um, pasolini is in it he actually plays chaucer himself and I, I like that idea in a way because obviously chaucer despite the fact that he uses kind of multiple first-person narratives in the Canterbury Tales, I like he is really the ringmaster of it. And I think, you know, certainly that's how kind of Pasolini as a director is working. He is the kind of the, the central frame which this kind of story is taking place through. And um, sometimes we perhaps are a little bit kind of sceptical when we have uh, directors making cameo appearances, you know, like Quentin Tarantino, M. Night Shyamalan, whatever. And I like it. I like it that Pasolini's in his films because I think um, it's earned in many respects. And the characters I play, he plays in them, I think, uh, really do kind of reflect aspects of his own personality. Now, The Canterbury Tales was another 
um, success critically and um, commercially. And it would be a couple more years, but he would eventually come back with another adaption of a massively famous and popular historical text, which would be Arabian Nights in 1974. Now, whereas sometimes past these films can feel quite small in scale, Arabian Nights, it feels like a huge film. It was filmed all around the world. And it is possibly, I think, my least favourite of the trilogy. And I think, arguably as well, I think it's probably one of the more, I think it's one of the most complex of all of them there's a, quite a lot going on here and like the other ones really it doesn't have a kind of a central um character but i think it's quite a brave film in that this is one of the most famous pieces of literature out there really and kind of his take on it is completely different to anything else that has gone before and i think it's a very adversarial piece of film because it really does kind of challenge the kind of the role of men and women in society. And there's various stories going on. And sometimes these kind of tales, they merge into one. Other times they kind of echo one another or indeed they complement each other. And I found it incredibly hard to keep up with at times. But that certainly didn't mean I didn't enjoy it. Because one of the things that I, I find, um, well, certainly in passing, is that he doesn't really kind of use master shots or anything like that his films seem to be very much kind of filmed on a kind of a shot by shot basis and what that does is you don't really know at times where they're going they kind of cut to close-ups of faces and another face and another face and it's as if he's kind of trying to look into the faces to decide where the most kind of interesting story will be and there's lots of kind of frontal framing and you are forced to look at these people and the thing that structure about all these films is that Pasolini doesn't kind of he doesn't use kind of stars or anything like that he, t he tends to use kind of non-professional actors or kind of just interesting faces and as such you know they'll have gappy teeth or spots or bad hair you know and it, it goes back to this fact that I think this is someone who makes films for the masses and not just a kind of elite you know again go back to Goddard you know all the people in his films are good looking and you know fashionable and you know Pasolini's the complete opposite and it's a, he's a very economical filmmaker, and that certainly comes across in Arabian Nights, where, you know, most directors would kind of spend hours framing and giving us these kind of wide shots of kind of lakes and cities. He doesn't get that. He gets the camera and gets stuck in there, and I think that's one of the things I really enjoy. You can't imagine him taking um, ages with kind of setups or anything like that. And really, kind of, for its technical aspects, I, I do really enjoy Arabian Nights, but I personally found this film to be... Uh, it, it makes sort of like at the time I suppose in the 70s kind of women's lib and all that kind of thing it, it, it kind of makes that even that look like it's from the dark ages because what it shows is the fact that sex is something which everyone men women should celebrate and in, in no matter what form you know whether it's kind of you know sex between men and just men or just women or kind of you know men and women and it feels like this is a film in which I think he is really saying that inherently we shouldn't be uptight about what we want sexually. And certainly you know, there's, there's women in this film um, who demand and get sex. And yeah, that's certainly something which we saw as well in the Decamon when we had the kind of the nuns and you kind of have this kind of image of them being you know, the most the, the most 
religiously pious of them all, but really, you know, deep down, they want so good shag. And certainly, the characters in this film are unencumbered by pressure placed on them by external forces such as religion or kind of in a way societal pressure and it's quite interesting because there's no mention of religion in the film really at all this is you know really you'd expect it to be kind of have you know islam feature quite prominently and it doesn't at all um there's there's you know there's no reference of it and i think it's it's one of the reasons why i think it's such a an important film in many respects because it's actually saying that different sexual persuasions can be part of society and in fact that society's a better place for them and especially if you i suppose if you do that in a within the framing of a text which is kind of you know takes part in the islamic world you can see why kind of feathers were going to be ruffled and certainly they were i think arabian nights it, it feels like the reaching of a certain pinnacle in Pasolini's career if you have two films which are quite successful before obviously you tend to find yourself you know you're getting more money getting more kind of power and that kind of thing and certainly I think that's one of the things that I that works to Arabian Nights detriment I think I, I, I did find this film kind of did drag a little bit and sometimes I my attention and my interest in it were kind of wavering as it was going along it doesn't feel as perhaps concise as the other two and I, w- I wouldn't say bloated is the word because it's, it, it seems to be hard. To, you, you can't really call Pasolini a director who, for all the reasons I was talking about before, really kind of the economics of his filmmaking and you know kind of the, the, the sparse sparseness of a lot of his imagery, or I mean, most sparseness. I suppose the grandiosity he takes out of the imagery. It seems to say that you know, he's kind of being self-indulgent, but I certainly think the story. Um, it could do with um, losing a few strands. And certainly on features, one of the features on the Blu-ray is that there's lots of kind of deleted scenes. And I, you know, I, I think at just over two hours, um, it's it's quite long enough. But it's certainly a, a, a kind of a breath of fresh air, like all of these films, really. You know, adaptions um, shouldn't be treated um, with... A, an unnecessary reverence. I've, I've said it before and i say it again, you know, things like The Lord of the Rings is in my mind a great adaption of those novels you know and it what it, well, it didn't hold up those the, the tolkien novels as kind of being kind of these kind of holy texts it went into there and explored the kind of the certain themes and and i think what links all of these films and indeed the the the, the literature behind them is that they were tales which were designed to entertain the masses and these films i think reflect that and they they have their own particular brand of Pasolini the director and the writer and the actor in them to make them intensely personal works that are also part of a more populist tradition and that to me is one of the keys of great adaption it's making taking some source material and kind of keeping some of it you know, well, you know keeping the kind of the basis basic elements there but also injecting yourself into it and Pasolini does that I think brilliantly one of the key factors I think about this trilogy is that they really do work on two levels there's that kind of you can enjoy them for enjoying them's sake you can laugh at the red hot pokers on the arse you can laugh at the kind of the idiot being conned out with money and jumping into a lake or whatever and people running around the streets after each other but there's also certainly contemporary ideas and themes being explored which still echo to this day and it gives them a longevity um which much like the 
the works they're based on will ensure they're around for a long time because they they, you know, they are very entertaining pieces of work and I can't really praise Criterion enough for this release they come loaded with extras and documentaries too many really to kind of go through Ennio Morricone did all the music for these and they're not possibly his most um, recognisable of scores but certainly they're very interesting and uh, to this day I've not been able to get hold of any of them which is a bit of a shame but I, I think as a director Pass- I like I like the reason I like these films m- the most is because of the way Pasolini shoots them and to kind of uh, this idea of using kind of established kind of and the fact that he, he's kind of the characters he's filming and the way he films them you can see echoes of that from other artists through the ages you know, you know in particular you know f- famous painters and I I think it shows the fact that he has a great deal of respect and not condescension from for sorry the the common person and along with these kind of anarchic brand of humor i think they make for hugely original and compelling works and i cannot really recommend this release enough okay then so moving swiftly on to spine number 635 which was jean-luc godard's 1967 film weekend now I've been thinking a lot about Jean-Luc Godard films and there are quite a few in the Criterion collection and I don't think there's any debating in my mind that Breathless is one of the most important films ever made. I also consider it to be one of the best films ever made. Every time I go back to it, there's something more about it that I love. And it was strange because when I first saw Breathless when I was at university, I didn't really care for it at all. And over time... I think it has kind of solidified in my mind as the masterpiece that a lot of people perceive it to be. But what I have found and what I have discovered when I go back to Jean-Luc Godard films, especially those in the Criterion Collection, is that I seem to kind of care less and less for them. And it frustrates me a little bit because sometimes I feel like that I'm sort of supposed to watch his films and take something out of them and a lot of the times they fall entirely flat on me I find them tedious dull unengaging and I I, I, I struggle sometimes to even see the kind of the technical aspects you know anything really in which I can kind of enjoy about them and I don't think there's any doubting really that Godard is one of the most prominent and for a lot of people, one of the most important figures in the cinema. However, I would venture that, to me at least, he is one of the most overrated and overpraised directors that ever has been. I, I think he is, in the same way, for example, I guess people like kind of Henri Clouseau, who his filmography isn't as big as Jean-Luc Godard, but I would say he's a filmmaker who people should be kind of celebrating a lot more than they actually do but someone like Godard just seems to have this kind of aura about him where critics are very very quick to sort of praise him and constantly go on about how incredible he is and yet what I tend to find is and before I began recording this episode I just did a little bit of kind of research online and looked at kind of other podcasts and uh, kind of blogs and things like that and it's you, you seldom hear Godard being spoken about and 
I think there's a reason for that in that people are perhaps afraid to kind of tackle his films. And I, I don't think it's kind of an out there statement to make that I believe to a degree that a lot of people feel the same way I do, yet kind of perhaps don't like to admit the fact that they find his work to be um, well, it's certainly challenging, but for the most part, quite uninspiring, quite uninteresting. And I, I've, I sort of refer to it as this kind of cult of Godard, where we are repeatedly told by academics and scholars that he is this genius. And that's just a kind of an accepted norm of cinema. And I remember when I was at university and it, it was really a strange phase because I was coming off this just diet of Hollywood films and beginning to kind of see other kind of forms of cinema and sure enough I can't remember what film got our film we looked at first in fact I think it might have been Breathless actually and the university lecturer made this kind of statement which at the time I almost kind of I, I remember rolling my eyes at the time and he said there's two types of cinemas there was cinema before Goddard and cinema after Goddard and it was this kind of smugness about what he was saying that I remember really kind of annoyed me because there were people in the room just like nodding along and I, I and it was a, a, apparently it was almost this kind of indoctrination into film studies that you had to admire his work and and perhaps it is because of that that I found it to be quite a turn off when I was looking at his work and it wasn't until, until about five years ago where I started going back to Godard that and seeing Breathless again and Although I don't think it's kind of like a year zero for film, I, you know, like I said, I do find it one of the most exhilarating pieces of cinema that I'd ever seen. And, you know, kind of whereas Hollywood at the time was kind of stretching frames and throwing more and more money at the screen, Goddard and his contemporaries stripped cinema back and redefined, I think, what the medium was about and could accomplish. But there were other film movements going on at the time and even before that were as equally as important. But... For me, Godard never really top breathless, and I try as I might, I was never able truly to get over the view that it was all a gradual decline from there on. And sure, there were some exceptions. I think Alphaville um, is a brilliant science fiction film, actually. But for, me, for the most part, Godard to date has not stoked my cinematic interests all that much. So I returned to university and the endless amount I heard about Godard from both lecturers and students... And when I began to probe a little more, it seemed that the worship attachment was more reputational than it was definable. And before I was reviewing this, before I got into this episode, I was talking to someone who is an, an absolute kind of Godard devotee. And everything they were saying was really kind of just reaffirming what it is that I kind of don't like about his films. And the fact that I find a lot of his people, a lot of people such as them, just talk about him in this kind of almost kind of religious way yet there seems to be a kind of real lack of substance to what they are actually saying. Like, you know, the constant reference, oh, you know, you have to sort of think about how he kind of mocks and satirises contemporary culture. And when you kind of push them a little further, no one actually seems to really kind of give, can be able to give you any examples. Or indeed, they don't really know, seem to know enough about the contemporary culture of the time to really know what it is that he's kind of pointing his satire at. Now... Over the past year, I've watched nearly all of his films. In fact, I've watched all of his films in the Criterion Collection that Goddard has put out. And to be brutally honest with you, for the most part, I am utterly indifferent to what he does. However, Weekend represented a peak at which Goddard and I simply did not get along. 
Now, I find it very hard when I watch a film that I don't like to invest as much passion and time into talking about it. You might remember the um, Charlie Chaplin release that came out last year. I, I simply couldn't really talk about it very much because I, I, I just don't like the film. And I, I, I think it's what separates the kind of the great critics from kind of us mere mortals in that they can articulate their admiration and discontent with equal strength. So in this case, I will try my, with all my might to try and convince you that Weekend is one of the most contemptible pieces of cinema to ever offend my eyes. Now, the film actually begins promisingly enough. And made in 1967, it was the year in which Hollywood was beginning to loosen the shackles of the Hayes Code and the rather amusing moral codes of conduct that came with it. The Graduate had raised eyebrows with its frank exploration of sex, Mrs. Robinson's iconic legs and her carefree sexual attitude to her wedding vows had dared go places many wouldn't even dream of. Yet compare The Graduate to the opening of Weekend in which we see Corinne, played by Morelia Dark, sitting on the end of her bed in her underwear, regaling her husband with a tale of a sexual encounter between her friend and her friend's husband. Now, the scene gave me hope that Weekend was going to be a kind of cause of the rediscovery of Goddard for my part. And with Corinne perched there and Roland urging her to continue, the camera tracked in and out, punctuated with an eerie musical cue. The low-key lighting gave the proceedings a sinister yet intoxicating energy. Her recollections of the liaison veered into more and more explicit territory, from kissing to sexual humiliation. Even by today's standard, this scene is still explicit, and he would not have been out of place in something like a David Lynch film. As this tale was going on, suddenly Goddard pulled the rug from underneath us. The liaison may not have actually taken place at all. Its real reason for being in the film was for the benefit of us and Roland, her husband. Now at this stage, I was intrigued by Weekend. It seemed to be playing in a kind of different realm. It was very serious, sinister almost. And there was also a kind of a hint of a kind of B-movie premise to it. Corian and Roland were actually planning to kill her father and make off with his money. And then, however, the film began to really fall apart as far as I was concerned. Because a great deal of Godard films consist of chain-smoking, uber-cool men in suits and pretty girls acting like fools. And Weekend is no exception. My first and most alarming moment came when leaving their trendy apartment block, Roland and Crean reversed into a neighbour's car whilst being harassed by the car owner's son dressed as a red Indian. It is no word of a lie that as this situation unfolded, I made a prediction that the child would call Roland and Crean either bourgeoisie, fascists or communists. Now why this trifecta of insults and why did they enter my mind? Because in almost every Goddard film I have ever seen, someone at some stage or other calls someone either bourgeois, fascist or communist. Now why I am not sure, perhaps it is some kind of intellectual in-joke that I am not in on, or perhaps it's just a critique of some kind of snipe at someone or some strand of cultural society at the time. Now Goddard, I think, tries to insert humour into these moments by making the person say these lines, being someone who he wouldn't expect to be saying it, i.e. in this case a child, which is just as annoying as the use of children films to dish out worldly advice to adults. In both instances, it is painfully annoying. Why I spent so much time angered by this is really kind of beyond me, although I was inclined to think a little bit more about French culture to try and really kind of get under the skin of why these moments occur. Now, 
France, after the war, tried to position itself as a kind of ideological other to the capitalist Western Communist East. Under de Gaulle, at one stage, it even left NATO, and yet despite its apparent social sophistication, still built nuclear weapons and clinged on to an empire in Africa and Asia. Despite this, the country exhibited a monumental level of arrogance toward the world at large. American consumerism was wrong. American culture was beneath intellectual consideration. Likewise, the British were a fallen empire, a relic of yesteryear failing to adapt to the new world. And of course, Russia, with its focus on the state, had effectively rendered its population one seething mass devoid of forming complex and abstract ideas around art and philosophy. Ergo, France was, in its eyes at least, and those of de Gaulle's, was the perfect fusion of the best parts of every foreign culture, whilst of course maintaining a staunchly proud and unique national personality. Now, Goddard seems to lampoon both his own country's culture and sociological makeup, as well as others. In the case of Weekend, where some critics swoon at his devastating blows towards its targets, I said rather feel like a being made privy to a stone student trying to impress equally moronic housemates in a university dormitory, all of course below a poster of Che Guevara. So when a child calls two adults communists, I don't applaud the absurdity of the moment. I recall in disengaged boredom and wonder if there was a time at least when this may have seemed relevant to the people. Who were watching the film or was it just something which Goddard's friends could applaud and pat him on the back for so when weekend is literally full of these types of idiosyncratic moments his standout scene is one eight minute tracking shot along a traffic jam with Roland and Corrine try and move their way through it whilst we see every stereotype known to man the big reveal is a huge accident in which bodies lie at the side of the road why moments like this simply annoy me is that much like Corinne's monologue, it's all messing about with no real payoff and promotes a rather nagging feeling this is all one big private joke. One can debate the reasons why the landscape Roland and Corinne move through is littered with vehicles and bodies. Is civilization collapsing around them? Do these accidents represent more weighty thematic elements? Or maybe they're just meant to be funny? Perhaps even a mixture of all of those, who really knows? Whatever they may or may not mean, they are extremely repetitive. Indeed, in one instant, the film even replays the same moment a number of times. Perhaps even Goddard knew he was being repetitive and wanted to literally show us the and preempt the criticism. His film was essentially just replaying itself over and over again. Who really knows? All of this builds towards one of the most outright idiotic conclusions to a film I have ever been privy to. Suddenly, Roland and Corinne find themselves with an armed gang of young intellectuals living in a forest. Now, I think it's quite important at this point just to, to uh, point out that there was various political movements going on in uh, France at the time, indeed across the world, especially youth movements. And what I often find about these is that you see pictures of them now and they'll all be sitting below like the you know, aforementioned kind of like Che Guevara or someone like Mao. And, you know, they'll be sort of like extolling Maoist principles. Mao, that, that, you might as well be sitting beneath a picture of Hitler or Stalin. Mao was a vile, evil dictator. And I think it, it kind of goes back to this thing, really, where in Europe there's so much kind of snobby, kind of critical, is, critical opinions on, especially Western culture, you know, America in particular, and they, they kind of look for these kind of alternative kind of historical figures. And they're just absolute despots for the most part. And I think this kind of group that Roland and Corinne come across, I think it is a bit of a snark at these types of people. There's no denying it. And you know, how they 
how long they've been there, what they were doing there, it kind of long escapes me. However, it was really, I think, the straw that broke the camel's back as far as my torrents of this film could go. During these moments, we are subject to seeing a live pig being smashed in the head with a mallet and then bled to death, a bird being skinned alive and gunfights between students. The level of nonsense on screen is matched only by its mindless cruelty to these poor animals that are barbarically preceded before our eyes. The tragic spectre, of course, ends with Corinne actually eating Roland, looking into the camera when the welcome card of Finn. In truth, this could have never come an hour earlier and this would still have been overstaying its welcome. Was or is there anything really can possibly garner from all this? Well, yes, which that weekend is an odious bore of a film that's incoherence is representative of nothing more than staggering lack of critical faculties by those who continue to maintain that Goddard is one of the most impressive voices in cinema. I've been reliably informed by several people who really enjoy the work of Goddard that after Weekend there was a couple more kind of masterpieces it were and then his career kind of really went downhill. Well, I'm not really sure that it can get any worse for me when it comes to his films. And I was thinking about Bellatar and the Turin Horse and when he said that that was going to be his last film because he kind of said everything he wanted to say. And it, it got me thinking because I suddenly thought to myself, well, when I went to go watch Django Unchained, I became acutely aware of the fact that this was the third film in succession that Quentin Tarantino has made about revenge. And it kind of gave me this nagging doubt that perhaps as a filmmaker, he's just going to be kind of constantly spinning the same story over and over again and when I look at Goddard and I think about Weekend and the other films that I've seen it seems that he fell into this trap very early on in his career and I haven't seen all of his films to kind of say for certain but I wonder if perhaps he might have done the world a favour by having the same kind of attitude as Bellatar and by just saying right that's it I've said enough now and rather than sparing us the kind of trauma of having to watch lesser films later on in his career if he would have just been better off kind of quitting whilst well I suppose for some whilst he was ahead as it happens Weekend is one of those films in the Criterion collection that I'm obviously um get caught occasionally when I buy films from them and I I despise and this is certainly one of them um, there are a few extra um, extras that are kind of quite good I suppose there is a um, video essay by writer and filmmaker Kent Jones which I quite enjoyed but overall I was completely uninterested in this film and like all these types of things if you completely disagree with me please do get in contact and um, kind of share your thoughts with me because I'm always interested in hearing what people especially when I'd, I'm not so keen on a film I'm always interested in p hearing from people who do enjoy it so that was spine number 635 Jean-Luc Godard's Weekend. Okay, so moving on to spine number 636, which was Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate. Now, if you stick the word gate at the end of a sentence, the implications are almost always bad. In the wider world, of course, it is in relation to scandal, notably coming from the Watergate scandal. In film, however, it has a different meaning and one which invariably means disaster, and of course it all originates from Heaven's Gate. Now, it was not the first mega-flop in Hollywood, but it was certainly one of the most notorious, effectively ending the age of the auteur, epic, and heralding a new Hollywood of high concept and the multiplex. Given its impact on bankrupting United Artists, one of the things that we seldom hear about is the film itself. It's just more 
a kind of an industry byword for excess and huge budgets. I first saw Heaven's Gate in 1998 on a pan and scan VHS copy, which I think had been picked up from a video rental store because it was in absolutely terrible condition. I was a fan of the Deer Hunter, and although I kind of always maintain to this day that the Deer Hunter is, I think to a degree, a slightly bloated film, and it could easily lose some of the fat from around its edges, which is causes not to kind of deny its place in film lore. It is a devastating work, however, it is at times a little aimless, perhaps. Now, from seeing The Deer Hunter, I was always intrigued as to what my, Michael Cimino did next. And when I, wonder, I think it was one of my lecturers that actually pointed me in the direction of Heaven's Gate. And by that time, I hadn't actually heard of it at all. Now, on first viewing, I don't think it can be denied that it is a stunning film to watch at times. But seeing it on the VHS, it was, I think, slightly almost kind of incomprehensible, which I, I think comes back to the, the poor quality of it. And... Come the end, I sort of felt it would have made a very good Sam Peckinfar film, perhaps, given the fact that I was very much into his work at the time. And I could even tell, really, from my first viewing that you could tell it was a film that was completely past the kind of the zeitgeist of the time. I think we have to go back and say, and this was definitely the post-Star Wars world, and Hollywood had kind of moved away from these kind of grand, thoughtful epics. And... I wasn't really surprised when I found out that it was a flop. However, time, I think, has been kind on Heaven's Gate and haven't seen it again on DVD um, back in the early part of the last decade. You couldn't actually buy it here, although you could get hold of the Region 2... Um, so the Region 2, is it? Is it? Um, yeah, so the Region 2 DVD. Um, you couldn't actually buy in Britain, but I actually got my copy in South Africa. And it was obviously a marked improvement on the VHS that I had. Um, but... I wouldn't say it's one of the best DVDs that I've ever got. But I could certainly kind of go back to the film and discover it again. And I think I enjoyed it a lot more uh, on seeing it on DVD. But now I think this Blu-ray has arrived from Criterion. It's really time to... I think you can see the film on the best terms possible. And what I'm not really going to do when I talk about Heaven's Gate is... I don't really want to mention the fact that it was... I don't really want to obviously have mentioned it. I don't really want to talk about too much in depth about the kind of the financial kind of disaster that was Heaven's Gate because to an extent, we all know the story and I, I think it's indicative really of the same thing I think we had with John Carter last year when people don't talk about the film itself. They just talk about this kind of hype surrounding it and I find it immensely dull, to be honest with you, a lot of the time and... I know a lot of people who talk about having to get and they've never seen it and they always go say oh well what's it actually like and I always think to myself well go and watch it you know just because it didn't make any money it doesn't mean um it was a poor film you know so look at something like the Shawshank Redemption that film it was not a big box office success and yet it has kind of gone down as one of the all-time greats so even if you have seen Heaven's Gate I mean I'm going to repeat myself a little bit but if you haven't um I really, I really do implore you to go and check it out, and especially this uh, new Criterion Blu-ray. But let's get on with the film, really. Let's actually talk about that a little bit, because Heaven's Gate covers the Johnson County War of 1892 that took place in Wyoming. Now, this was a particularly, uh, I think, bleak moment in American history. It's not that well known, I don't think, um, in kind of the wider history 
of America, but it's certainly one of the most shocking incidents, really. And it basically consisted of a group of rich landovers who hired mercenaries to kill settlers on the land. Now, they had kind of charges um, brought up against them for kind of like um, stealing cattle, and no doubt some of them were um, thieves. However, the death list was approved by the then American president, and a posse set out to Johnson County to kill the people on the list. And obviously the people on the list weren't exactly thrilled about that and fought back. And of course we had what was known as the Johnson County War. Now, Heaven's Gate is kind of, although it's based on those events, it is, it's many of the people in it um, actually existed, although their relationships between each other um, aren't as were as it was. We have... Chris Christopherson playing James Avril, who is having a relationship with the local madam, Isabella Hubert, who play, plays a character called Ella Watson, who is on the death list. She happens to be in love with one of the people who's going to be doing the killing. Um, not only is she seeing um, James Avril, she's also having sex with Christopher Walken, who plays a character called Nate Champion, who is one of the people who is going to be doing some of the killing. And we also have Jeff Bridges, who plays John L. Bridges, who is one of the local townspeople who works with Avril. And quite interestingly, actually, but Jeff Bridges is actually paying one of his distant relatives in this, which I found quite a, an interesting touch. Um, we have John Hurt playing William C. Irvine, who is a friend of James Avril's and who is in with the landowners. And is kind of a drunk who can see what they are doing is wrong, but very kind of does very little to actually do anything about it and leader of the landowners is frank canton planned by sam waterson and one of the things i would find uh, well which you might find quite interesting to do and it's a testament really to um, i think this is something we're going to be talking about in a little bit of detail but it's a testament really to the striving for historical accuracy certainly perhaps not in terms of the story because although ella watson did exist she certainly wasn't having any kind of relationship with james Everell. but um, you know i i no doubt that they the pair would kind of um, they may have had some contact. James Avril played a landowner, was actually a landowner as well. But in this, Christopherson is actually playing a kind of like a sheriff, an extremely wealthy one as well. I mean, that's something which we see at the start of the film. But so going back to the point I was going to make, which was go and look at the pictures of the actors who play these and then go and look at the um, actual pictures of the real life characters, and especially in the case of Frank Canton, um, it's uncanny. The, the, the attention to detail is absolutely stunning. And the story essentially consists of Avril coming to a small town to warn Ella or try to convince Ella to leave and to rally the people on the death list to fight back against the landowners. Obviously, there is the conflict with Nate Champion, who kind of Ella does have sex with him but she makes him pay um which i think is kind of in a way it's a very sad um kind of existence really you know she's kind of she does prostitute to him but nate is clearly very much in love for her eventually kind of asks her to marry and leave essentially the film is is really that kind of simple avril comes to the town and tells them that there is a death list against them and we see the kind of the mechanics kind of working for this army of mercenaries to be legalized and come to johnson county and to begin the war and when you consider the film uh, is over three and a half hours long 
you, you suddenly realize when you when you think about the story and how kind of basic and simple it is how kind of bloated perhaps this film could be and the first thing i would say even though it has an incredibly long running time i don't think uh, heaven's gate drags at all and one of the reasons that is obviously chimino because having now as well as listened to the feature on this and got an insight into how he works you can kind of see that this is someone who when it comes to the kind of the normals of film kind of making and film writing he doesn't seem to kind of adhere to those he actually kind of states himself that he likes his kind of characters to almost direct him he doesn't he just kind of goes with them and that's why when you watch a film like the deer hunter me one of the things that we always talk about is we have this massive long scene of the wedding and it's like what's that really about and really on the overall kind of sort of the 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 film, I guess, you could you could get that sequence down to about 15 minutes, but Chimino shot it for about an hour, and obviously what we're doing is we're embedding ourselves with these characters, and much of Heaven's Gate kind of feels like this. There's just scenes which are just... The, the best example I can give is there's a scene where the, kind of the townspeople are kind of going around this... Um, it's actually the building, Heaven's Gate. I guess it's the, the, the kind of the titular building, thing. and it's like a kind of um, an entertainment hall, I suppose. And they're having this kind of dance, and they're all on the um, roller skates. And everyone leaves, and then Ella and James just kind of come back in and have one last dance. And I guess the film doesn't really need that sequence per se, but it is, I think, kind of indicative as to what kind of Heaven's Gate is, because it's this long meditative film and I think it's an incredibly melancholy piece of work in many respects because there is this sense and a foreboding about it that permeates the entire film that this awful thing is coming and really there is not a great deal anyone can do about it and this it, it kind of feels like we're in this kind of state of being between life and death and I think that's one of the having gone back now having gone back and seen this film that was how I felt about Heaven's Gate. It feels like a kind of, on the part of the character, a kind of a swan song to life, really. And I think it's a very kind of bleak, uh, yet utterly beautiful film. I honestly believe, and I've, I've read um, a book and seen a, a documentary about the making of Heaven's Gate. I generally consider um, this to be possibly one of the most beautiful films ever made it is it's simply stunning to look at and i'm going to put some screen grabs up for you to have a look because i've really never really noticed i think this the blu-ray really gives you the opportunity to get in there and just marvel at the production values of this film i mean chimino was obsessed with authenticity in the film he had actually had a steam engine transported um from montana where the film was being shot from a denver museum and there was a kind of a horse-drawn buggy and he had all the kind of like the spokes and the upholstery uh, made in different states and just to get it absolutely nailed on. And like I said, the costumes that you see people wearing are absolutely, uh, totally authentic down to the buckles. And all of this, to an extent now, I, I guess this is kind of, when we talk about kind of the excess of kind of like CGI and things like that, because you often that becomes a distraction um, in a negative way. And one of the things I find about CGI stuff is because the inherent fakeness of it, and you couldn't level that argument against Heaven Gates. It is one of the most purest forms of of filmmaking. I, I think it's you know the, the, it's such a kind of 
it sticks so much to reality in a way and obviously that was to its detriment in many respects and I think you have to tip the hat at this point to the cinematographer Vilmos Zimsmod who if he, he, he shot so many of my favorite films um throughout the 70s things like Close Encounters especially uh, McCabe and Mrs Miller which uh, um, really I think that'd be a quite a good kind of companion film to Heaven's Gate certainly I think kind of thematically there's kind of quite a lot going on there but he also did kind of did The Deer Hunter and he uses so many kind of different kind of um, lenses and techniques to get this very distinct look to the film because it's not it's a strange one on on Blu-ray. I was really, when I when I heard that they were going to be doing this film Blu-ray, I was really kind of um, anxious about how good a restoration this would be, and I think you can. I think I can honestly say this is possibly the best Criterion Blu-ray I've ever seen. Certainly, it's up there with the uh, Visconti's The Leopard, which kind of had my jaw on the floor. But this. Even during the kind of the film's action scenes, Chimino manages to find a way of making every single frame uh, a work of art, which I, th- I think that's how you can look at this film. It is just one big visual work of art. I don't necessarily think that... Um, I, I, I wouldn't say Heaven's Skate is a masterpiece. I think that might be stretching it a little bit. Um, I, th- I certainly think it's a masterpiece of film, a kind of production design and direction on another day if this film was made five years earlier um than it was i i think we would be talking about heaven's gate in a completely different light i I I think this film would have been up there for oscars galore as it happens i think it just kind of it it was a kind of the case of arriving at completely the wrong time and i think that goes back to some of the film's thematic elements because this was an age where we were getting to kind of you know Bruckheimer and Simpson and it was all kind of high concept cheery stuff and Heaven's Gate isn't it? it's a very melancholy film and it, it's interesting to me because I was looking at an original poster of Heaven's Gate which clearly has the American flag in it and it, it has a picture of Christopherson looking down at um, Isabella Huber and I I suddenly felt how this film you coming into the 80s as well with the kind of the Reaganite um patriotism how this film was also i think could be conceived as being quite kind of critical of um american history and it's obviously not the kind of incident in american history which i think people you know necessarily be proud of um but i do think it's a very kind of refreshing look at the kind of the myth of the american west because you know, so often, I suppose, we have this kind of view of the, uh, you know, the settlers kind of moving out there to, you know, kick off the Indians and this kind of stuff. And this is, and, and over the years, you know, we, I think we've kind of obviously come to realise that, you know, the Indians weren't the kind of the bad guys. Well, you know, certainly they did probably some pretty horrible things, but in terms of the kind of the kind of sitting on the fence of good and bad, they certainly weren't the kind of the, the bad and probably were... Uh, had every right to kind of fight back at the invasion of the lands. But the thing about Heaven's Gate, which is quite interesting, I think it's a very modern um, take on the Western because we have the kind of the, you know, a generation of you know immigrants, these are all Eastern European immigrants by the sounds of things, who have kind of arrived in the new world to kind of start this life. And it's obviously not going according to plan. And, you know, they are the victims of people who consider themselves true Americans. And obviously, it's, it's one of, I suppose, the 
eternal debates about America. You know, what is a true American? You think about it, it's a country essentially made up of migrants, and it, it seems that you know there's always a debate going on. You know, what what constitutes a true American? I, I see some rather kind of, I suppose, simplistic memes um, that float around on Facebook that kind of uh, make the kind of the observation that. No one in America is actually kind of can call themselves a true American. They are all kind of, you know, been brought in from all over the world. But I think Heaven's Gate tackles um, an issue which we, we, we see it again today. You know, um, immigrants are very, you know, especially in England, that they're an easy way of blaming um, social ills on an entire kind of group of people, sometimes completely unfounded. Um, certainly, I mean, you know, living from Kent in southern England, which was kind of like just on, you know, really, I suppose if you hop across France, you know, it's the closest to the European continent in terms of counties. You know, so many people down there have these ridiculous observations and beliefs about um, people coming over from, from Europe. And you know, things like, you know, I'll give you the statistics, you know, like 70% have got TB or, you know, 65% have got serious criminal records. And it's all utter bollocks. And I think what it is kind of masquerading as a way of conveniently placing the wrongs with the country on people who really have nothing to do with it. And I guess it's time, I, I, I suppose one of the, the thing about Hamsgate is that it does build up to a conclusion and, and an incredible battle sequence. And, um, you know, it's it's worth the kind of the price of admission because just for that, because it, it, it might seem like it's kind of not really kind of build, going anywhere at times. And yeah, I would agree it does take um, certainly a few kind of liberties with its audience. You know, like I said, it is quite indulgent. And obviously, if you kind of if you if you do like looking at kind of pretty scenery, then really you can you can kind of get by. But I suppose if you're kind of watching this film thinking, you know, I'll just chuck it on and see what happens. You might find yourself getting a bit bored. But that final sequence is I think it ranks up there with one of the greatest kind of um, combat scenes ever filmed. And. This is one of the other things I was watching. It you feel the deaths in Heaven's Gate. You get a real sense, I think, of the fact when people are getting shot. It, it feels brutally real and gory and painful and nasty. And and how conflict could be. You know, we've seen it so many times on westerns where someone gets shot in the chest with an arrow, and they kind of stagger and then fall over. You know, the reality is that you know, an arrow in your leg or wherever or your, your chest, it's not going to kill you, um, you, you know, right away. It's going to be you know extremely painful. You might get a, you know, a few before you eventually succumb to your wounds. And you know, a lot of times in films, especially kind of war films and westerns of the 50s, 60s, and almost the 70s, sometimes death is a relatively painless process by the looks of things. Here it isn't. You feel it. You see the kind of the 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 body come apart, and you see the blood and there's a democracy to the killing because it's not just the men who are going to get topped. It's it's everyone, you know, is, is going to die. And it's Avril kind of, you know, making, helping these people rise up. It doesn't have that kind of, I suppose, I guess the word would be the avatar sentimentality. Um, there is a kind of a let's not go down and, and die, but it it, it it doesn't feel fake or kind of, the the kind of emotion of that is being ramped up there's no kind of triumphant score i think it's like i said it does feel like a film which is very much taking place between life and death in many respects and i was just amazed seeing it again on blu-ray how affected i was by it this time and and how 
you, you have you have to really separate yourself um, from all the bullshit about surrounding uh, Heaven's Gate, because what is left, I think, is a quite extraordinary film in many respects. There will never be anything quite like Heaven's Gate, and you know, obviously, kind of like James Cameron's Titanic was one of those ones which, you know, I remember they calling that before that film came out. I kept hearing Cameron's Gate. You know, it was going to be this mega flop, but even that, I mean, you know, obviously it was a kind of a big kind of film that went kind of like you know way over budget and things like that. But you can still tell it's you know, supplementing and much of it with kind of CGI. Heaven's Gate is everything you see on film is there. And it makes such a difference, I think, in how you buy into the reality of the film. And even at the moments, but the parts where I thought, you know, this film is kind of lagging a little bit, I was still able to marvel at something in Heaven's Gate, which was just, even if just looking into the scenery, it's it's jaw-dropping. I so much want to see this film um, projected. And as I understand... There, there, there is going to be a print going around, a restored print um, sometime this year. And having just seen, um, for the first time, Lawrence of Arabia at the cinema projected, um, I felt like I was seeing that for the first time again. And, you know, that, that t- the, the, the runtime of that just sped by because I was spending so much time just gawping at the image. And I, hopefully that Heaven's Gate will get that and get back out in the cinema. Because it, it deserves to be, it, de- it deserves to be spoken about as a film and a very good one at that. I mean, all this bullshit. I went on one. I think it was the Empire Online website, and it was in the. It was like in, it, they put it in the top fifty worst films of all time. And anyone who says that this is one of the worst films of all time, I I, I don't believe that. I I think they are um, just going on the basis that oh, you know, it was a flop, so therefore you know it must be bad. I I just think it's it's tainted badly by its kind of reputation for the excess of its director, and no doubt. Um, you know, Michael Cimino, by all accounts, you know, was just obsessively, obsessively, sorry, um, kind of anal about so many things. To you know, and he had an army of editors working on this film to try and kind of piece it together. And you know, by his own um, admission, one of the things you find out from the extras is that you know, he doesn't really, um, he doesn't storyboard or plan anything. He just kind of goes on and. Yeah, that's, that's quite incredible to me, really. You know, to not kind of um, any really kind of have any kind of like much kind of game plan going on. Obviously, you can tell that is the uh, reputation as being you know incredibly excessive. And really, I think the studios after this really reined in people. And you, know, film hasn't been great since. You know, I still, you know, the post Star Wars film world. You know, it's yeah. There's been some gems, but really, the kind of the industry focus. You know, has become far more um, commercial, commercially minded, and Heaven's Gate certainly, I think, was, or certainly Heaven's Gate played its part in that. But overall, I think um, this Blu-ray it's a must own. I think for anyone um, who has an interest in film, as I said, I it's up there with one of the greatest um, Blu-rays that Criterion have put out. Just in terms of picture. Audio quality as well is fantastic. Um, the DVD was quite hard to hear what people were saying. And it's quite a quiet film for a lot of it as well. Lots of the kind of dialogue is kind of perfunctory. And um, although you kind of perhaps don't need to kind of hear what sometimes characters are saying, it is nice to be able to actually have that option. And the DTS HD soundtrack um, is top notch on this. And certainly um, 
I was hugely impressed with it going back again. And like I said, two hours, 30 minutes, uh, three, three hours, 30 minutes, whatever, just whizzed by. And Heaven's Gate would have to be my pick for November. Um, I think it's a must own in many respects and certainly uh, possibly one of the best releases of the entire year. So do pick it up. Extras wise, not pa- not as much as I thought, to be honest with you. There's a pretty interesting um, kind of documentary, I suppose, which is clips of the film and uh, Chimino um, talking over his kind of creative um, process. Um but yeah, do check this out and try and see it on the biggest um, screen you possibly have. I'm thinking of converting my loft and getting a, uh, well, I've already converted my loft, sorry, but I'm already, I'm thinking of putting a projector up here. And I think uh, were, were I to do that, this would probably be my first port of call. Absolutely fantastic stuff and my pick of the month for November. Okay, so next up was spine number 637, which was René Clément's 1960 Purple Moon. Now, Ray Clark was one of those directors who rose through the ranks of French filmmaking from assistant director to full-blown director in his own right. He started off making documentaries before graduating on to fictional films and it was working on Jean Gotsu's Beauty and the Beast where he showed the director his first feature, The Battle of the Rails, that Gotsu noted he had no idea his technical advisor was such a formidable director in his own right. René Comte was, by the time he made Purple Noon in 1960, already a two-time Oscar winner recipient of several international awards, including a Palme d'Or at the Cannes Films Festival and the Golden Lion from the Venice Film Festival. Purple Noon represented something of a rebirth for Clement in the mid-50s. He had become the target of a great deal of criticism from the cashiers de cinema movement, most notably Francois Truffaut, who, writing in his manifesto A Certain Tendency of French Cinema, attacked Clement as not being an artist. It is a statement that reeks of pretension and is ultimately meaningless given how loosely one can define the term artist. Like him or loathe him, Michael Bay is an artist, for example, just not one I admire, yet to others I'm sure he is. It is, after all, just opinion of the most personal variety. Now, whilst making Purple Noon, he worked with the Hakim brothers, Raymond and Robert, who were going to produce the film, and along with Director of Photography Henri Decree, all three were darlings of the French New Wave, leading some to speculate that Clement was trying to reach out to the movement, or at least give the impression he had New Wave credentials. Now, I had absolutely no idea that this film existed before Criterion put it out, and it is, of course, based on the novel The Talented Mr. Ripley by Patricia Highsmith. Now, of course, I'd seen the Anthony Mengele version, and that was something of an unexpected delight, and I think it's only kind of grown in my mind as to how good it is, partly in fact because I think Philip Seymour Hoffman and Matt Damon are amongst two of my favourite actors. And I've never actually read the novel, but seeing different filmers take on the same subject is always interesting to me. I don't view these films as remakes in the cynical sense, so in my view they have more than justification for existing as opposed to many of the cynical cash-ins we seem to be bombarded with at the moment. Now... Clement's Purple Noon is far more stripped down a version of the talented Mr. Ripley than the Mungella version. Gone is the New York opening with Tom being given his assignment by Dickie Greenlee's father, as well as the nervous Tom faking an interest in jazz records in order to curry favour with his prey Dickie. I won't endlessly compare the two films, but it is what, from a, I suppose from a screenwriting perspective, that impressed me most was how the economy of the storytelling works. I was in from the off with the relationship between Tom and Dickie needing no more background or further expansion. There was no mystery around Tom. Dickie knew full well what he was there to do and even mocked blatant lies about their pair's past childhood together. Purple Noon in Clement's hands is a dark exploration of desire. Tom Ripley, I think, is one of the most compelling screen villains 
I've ever seen. Now, his intentions and motivations do not manifest themselves in a kind of typical pantomime verbal type of way. He is slightly different from other on-screen psychopaths. He doesn't wink at the camera and marvel at his own brilliance and intellect. He doesn't have the quasi-political or any such kind of agendas or kind of killer manifestos. Instead, Ripley is a ruthless social chameleon who even overtly forewarns Dickie he's going to murder him, and in the aforementioned false memory of their childhood antics, give plenty of notice that he might not be quite the ticket. Who would, after all, bring someone close to them and allow that person to be intimately part of their life, knowing they are lying and on a mission from their own father to return them to America? And at this juncture, I must quickly talk about Dickie Greenleaf, played by Maurice Renette. Now, one of the reasons why I'm quite happy to go along with Tom and to an extent actually want him to get away with it is because Dickie is such an odious prick. He is a spoiled, lazy, obnoxious playboy who throws his besotted girlfriend's Marge's manuscript into a sea in an act of childless vengeance and spends his father's money with a reckless abandon, with no fear of ever running out. His permatan and blinding self-arrogance make him a figure of hate worthy of takedown. Enter then Tom, whose desires the life Dickie has. Only t Tom does not want to be some kind of better reincarnation of Dickie. He still wants the life of affluence with its lack of worry and hassle that will afford him the luxury of calling a busy day one spent lounging in a designer bar or shopping for an assortment of luxuries. There is a kind of master-slave dynamic to the two as well. In one scene we see Tom sitting on the floor pretending to be Dickie looking in a mirror. We then cut to Dickie looking over him holding a cane. And it's hard after all to kind of really like slave owners at all. It's, of course, further complemented by the film's location. Shot in Italy, this is a type of Mediterranean existence that now, thanks to cheap package deal holidays, has become the playground of loudmouth families and hordes of drunken stag dudes. Here, with the aid of director Henri Decree, Italy is presented as a kind of modern utopia, a relative Garden of Eden complete with well-stopped immaculate cafes filled with bronze 20-something enjoying the easiest of easy lives. It is an intoxicating and seductive world, and with Dickie being such an unlikable character, you cannot help but understand Tom's scheming. Claremont, however, is by no means going to give this to Tom easily. One overriding factor about Ripley is not a great deal smarter than his quarry, and his master plan is clearly quite flawed. From wearing Dickie's clothes to mimicking his voice, Tom is like a child playing a deadly game, when such a web of deceit may be vast, but is more mind-filled than a series of airtight alibis. He does not make any attempt to flee, instead he just carries on as is, being the friend to Marge and possibly making moves to be her lover one day. Possibly due to time, Purple Nude was made when it does offer a moral absolution of sorts. Tom is going to be caught, but it's not the ending we really crave or indeed want. It is this that makes Purple Noon and Tom such an oddity, it is here, and it's here I think we must consider the film's genre. Were it to take place at night, we would invariably say it's a noir indeed, its twisting plot will lead us to that conclusion fairly quickly. Only Purple Noon is the polar opposite, it takes place in broad daylight, for the most part eschewing conventional expectations. We might expect to spend more time with the police unwrapping Tom's crime, instead when the police do show up we are more interested in how Tom is going to get out of it, as opposed to them catching him. Instead I would prefer to look at Purple Noon as a kind of psychological procedural. Even in the pre-digital age Tom has all the tools he needs to execute his plan. The typewriter becomes the voice of Dickie from the grave, a forged signature, and he has at hand vast sums of money. Tom plays Marge emotionally throughout, sending her a brutal letter from Dickie, then arriving the next day to comfort her and convince her that she needs to move on. Tam acts more like a conductor, hoping eventually to pull off a virtual work of deception. The relative ease of by which he's able to do this may invoke claims that Purple Noon is too easy on Tom. He is able to go about his crimes in a kind of ease that only cinema allows. 
In fact, I would contest the complete opposite is true. Tom kills Dickie and his awful friend Freddy, and in both instances we see the pains of which he has to go through to dispose of the bodies. Without an accomplice, he must all do all this carrying and disposing of the bodies of his own, which he doesn't really do that well anyway. Indeed, Tom is a solitary character, we know he is a liar about his childhood, and in turn it becomes harder to really pin down who or what he is. Indeed, how is it does he actually know Dickie's father? Has he conned his way into higher circles abroad? And where is this kind of drifter from? It's all part of the allure he exudes, some may say romanticism, however I find Tom to be quite a despicable person whose actions are vaguely excused because the people he kills are so unworthy of being liked. Clement's direction is near perfect, also he doesn't draw attention to himself, instead I would suggest he knows that Alain Delon playing Tom was a star in the making instead spends most of the time making Delon look every bit the screen icon he was destined to be. Purple Noon, much like the locations it takes place in, is an intoxicating film. I find that in many of the films of this era, a great deal, many of them about pretty people leading rather superficial lives with a commonant being a central lead male surrounded by hangers-on. Eight and One Half, Laventura and La Dolce Vita to name but a few, and Purple Noon seems to be about one of those hangers-on, a twisted type of human who preys on familiarity and stupidness. Tom Ripley may be about to be arrested at the end of the film, but we have enjoyed his adventure. Does that make us morally dubious, or is it because of we love a rogue? Whatever the answer, Purple Noon is the type of thriller that delivers on almost every conceivable scale, and is, in my mind, one of the finest films of that period. So next up was spine number 638, which was Christopher Nolan's Following. Now, I could honestly say that I, I've never seen Following before, um, prior to going into this. I did have it on DVD, and I never got around to watching it for some reason. And... Having now seen it, I can kind of say that I think that following is an almost perfect example of how to make a low-budget film. Now, key to this, I think, is the fact that it looks comparatively well-made and in a sense stays true to the story that it's actually trying to tell. Now, that is not to patronise following. It's just been made by people who know how to get the best out of their budget and Really, what it comes down to is a great example of good producing and good direction. Now, it's been mistaken, I think, on perhaps 24 Frames cast that I have something of an issue with Christopher Nolan, and I really don't. I actually love all his films. In fact, I don't think he's made a bad one, including Following. And he makes the types of film that I, for one, want to see. That being said, I don't think he should be making every film going, as some do, nor do I think he's a genius many claiming to be. And there seems to be this kind of rather sly kind of comments that people make, you know, like he can't do action. And they seem to be obsessed with saying that on Slash Film. And I don't really agree with that um, remark either. So and I, I can almost see perhaps in the future that perhaps Nolan will be the kind of the victim of kind of snarky criticism as kind of seems to be the fashion with hipster criticism. It seems anytime someone gets too popular, these kind of people seem to kind of feel it's OK to kind of bring it down a peg or two as if, you know, their opinion really is that important. But likewise with Nolan, I think it's a fair statement to say, and I've said it, made it many times before, that if you think The Dark Knight is the greatest film ever, then quite frankly, you haven't seen many films. And I think that's one of the problems with Christopher Nolan. He has kind of been stuck on this pedestal. Perhaps it has something to do with how mediocre a lot of films are, and his kind of offer a little bit more. But certainly, I feel it's kind of important to get some perspective when we talk about him as a director. So... What did I make then of 1999's following his directorial debut? I think it should be worth noting as well that he had made several shorts before this. Well, given how far he has come, it's interesting to go back all this way to see the DNA of the filmmaker we have now. 
The story has its origins in a good old-fashioned B-movie noir film with a twisty tale of femme fatales, sharp suits and a distinctly fatalistic storyline. An unnamed writer follows people around London trying to get inspiration for his next novel until one day he, he finds that one of his prey turns around and demands to know what he is doing following him. The mysterious Cobb is a young man who confronts the mysterious writers and then persuades him to come on a mission with him to rob people's houses. Cobb seems quite the guy and it's not long before the writer meets a mysterious blonde. Her and Cobb know each other and it's not long before it appears that Cobb may have an agenda of his own. Now, it would be a lie to say there is much depth or level of meaning in following, which is not to suggest it's a superficial film, far from it. It virtually demands to be rewatched, and indeed may actually be more rewarding the second time around as its labyrinth plot begins to unfold. The film makes use of the fractured, non-linear style that we would see in Nolan's follow-up, Memento. Indeed, after Memento came out, I was rather concerned that Nolan would fall into the kind of M. Night Shyamalan trap, being more known for some narrative sleight of hand than a director. Questioning reality is a recurring thematic element in his work and more often than not the last few minutes of his films make us question the validity or at least make us look at his films differently from how we were previously experiencing them. It works best in the, pre the prestige. The reveals of the film to me anyway enrich the experience of it greatly indeed make me feel a degree of sympathy for the characters that at first I was struggling to find. It's why it's one of my favourite films of the last decade and certainly one of my favourites of all time. The Dark Knight Rises, however, had me asking too many questions. It was a bit like having too much to think about and most crucially exposed what I consider to be indicative signs of a filmmaker trying to have his cake and eat it, certainly from a narrative point of view. In following, the groundwork for this narrative style can clearly be seen. Nolan shows us multiple timelines from the same story. Our understanding of the character relationships involves a great deal as the film progresses. Often we are aware of information from the future in a scene taking place in the present context, yet enough information is withheld to have us wondering what is actually going on. More often than not, a lot of noir stories annoy me because they seem so convoluted. Following is a fairly simple tale, yet through its structure has more enough to keep you interested. Is here you have to salute the filmmaking of Nolan. I, I can really attest to the fact that when you write a screenplay which you have every intention of making yourself, the first thing you don't do is set your film in the Middle Ages two seconds after a great battle has occurred. Instead you write what you can conceivably have. Excellent examples include Primer, El Marachi and of course Following. And as anyone has seen these films will no doubt be aware, especially in the case of Primer, they are conceptually at least as bold as anything you can imagine. Following, written in what I would call the reality of expectation, i.e. what they could afford to do, does not look like it lacks anything that would actually make its story better. It's essentially set in different people's houses and doesn't need much more. No doubt they would like to have more money, but Crucial's story is no less for what they don't have. The film was made on a 16mm Arri camera and Nolan uses a 4-3 frame. Again, this may be all they had, but I love this black and white format and deed to frame. For this type of story, it helps you keep focused on the action. Can you tell this is going to be Nolan of the future? Well, perhaps not, suffice to say, but it is incredibly well shot, though. Easily the film's trump card is a screenplay written by Nolan, of course. It is, as I said before, a film that is best seen twice, as you will find yourself going back and questioning what you are seeing and hearing. Often we might feel we are being cheated, as essentially what we are seeing and hearing may in fact be false. I don't have that issue here. In fact, I actually thought it was just incredibly clever. Many no-small-budget films are let down by the acting front. Not so here, apparently. Nolan rehearsed quite extensively with his actors, which is always a massive boost for these types of thing, and the results speak for themselves, especially 
interesting is Alex Hora's cob, a cocky yuppie type, the kind of person you used to see on the BBC programme This Life. There's also a few other Nolan regulars on board. David Julian does the soundtrack and, of course, wife Emma Thomas is on hand to produce as well as turning up regularly as an extra. Overall, I think following is a tremendously good fun film and as I said it's a perfect example of I think a kind of low budget noir I think it might be a bit much to sort of say this is obviously the the beginnings of the brilliance that we will later see from his work but certainly it's one of the most assured and arresting debuts that I've ever seen and certainly a film which I think I can see myself kind of going back to quite a few times to kind of get inspiration for any kind of low budget projects that might be floating around in my head and Particularly what I loved about the disc was the commentary from Nolan because I, it was a real kind of, it just, he, he seems to be frighteningly intelligent. And I think, um, to my mind at least, I think this is the only time he's actually ever done a commentary. And so it might be worth checking out for that. Um, one of the other things I did enjoy was the fact that they'd done a 5 round surround sound mix, which was re-recorded in DTH HD Master Audio. And it really did sound brilliant. I think... Um, Obviously, having a little bit more, obviously, they've got a little bit of money to kind of go back and do that, and it does certainly benefit the film. It doesn't feel kind of overly artificial, it really kind of complements what you're seeing. So, overall, following, really enjoyed it. Um, I, I did say before that I wasn't going to talk about the Quartz Side trilogy for December, and if I had to do a kind of December pick, those films would be it. But um, for fans of Christopher Nolan, um, definitely well worth checking out, and um, a pretty impressive package all round, really. And um, if you haven't already, it may well uh, be a welcome addition to your Nolan collection. OK, so that's going to be it for this episode of the Criterion Roundups. I will be back very soon with um, a look at the January, February, March 2013 releases. I've got a few waiting to be watched. I'm just waiting for the rest to come through so I can... I, I, strangely enough, I've got some spine numbers which are kind of ahead of the others and I'm lacking ones. I'm actually already lacking one from February, but I've already got a few for March. So it's incredibly annoying, but as soon as... Uh, the, uh, I think as well what might be hampering things is the Easter break with the kind of the post. It does seem to seem things a little bit haywire, but I will be on it as soon as I possibly can. So don't forget, check out the Master Cinema Cast at moccast.blogspot.com. You can find us on iTunes also. You can get in contact with me at 24framescast at gmail.com and you can follow me on Twitter at 24framescast. Many thanks for listening and I'll be back soon. Bye.